Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. I'm Ashani. And this is... Fuck. Episode 13. One day. One day I'll get this right. This is episode 13, One Does Not Simply Blindfold a Dwarf. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. So, with that said, let's get into it. Today we're going to be discussing chapters 6 and 7 from Book 2 of Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, in these chapters, we finally get to Lothlorien um, after the demise of Gandalf and Moria. Uh, the team meets up with some elves there, and they basically get shown the way to um, the Lord and Lady of Lothlorien, Celeborn and Galadriel, who are very magical, very powerful. Um, we get some interactions between uh, Gimli and the elves that are pretty interesting that we'll spend some time talking about. And we also get Frodo uh, and Sam looking into Galadriel's uh, mirror, which is basically her crystal ball, I guess. Um, and it shows them some visions of maybe what is to come. Uh, so yeah, let's let's get into this these chapters. Um, Actually, we start out with just Aragorn straight up being like, I told you so, and now Gandalf's dead. <laughs> yeah, immediately, immediately after they get out of the mines of Moria. Yeah, I mean, the the energy of I was right and now we're all screwed because I told you so is certainly a choice. We get a little bit of a sense of urgency initially with Aragorn kind of being like, hey, the orcs are kind of still after us. Like, let's get a move on. That part at least feels like, okay, there, there's an urgency. Orcs are after them. They're trying to get somewhere. It makes sense that this is not the time to grieve. But yeah, I kind of expected once they got there to see a little bit more of some expression that wasn't just let's talk about Gandalf's life, but more like, I am sad, or like, one of them cries, maybe. I don't so, know, is it because, like, they they say at a certain point, like, when they get to, to um, when they're talking to Gladriel, they say, like, oh, we were so, first we were, like, so, uh, we were all wounded and we were all really weary, and then we got to Lothlorien, and we were, we were, our moods abruptly improved, so we sort of forgot. Yeah, and that seems to be kind of, like, hinting at the magic of the place itself, maybe, that it's making them feel better. Similar yeah. to what Rivendell did, right? They all felt better when they were there. Distracted, just choosing not to think about it. They In are some wounded, ways, though. that seems more callous, right? That when you're starting to feel better and you're a little bit removed from the immediacy of it, that's when, like, I would say I would want to be talking about my dead friend and I would want to be remembering them and like you know sharing memories and stuff because I'd feel like I was actually capable of handling it maybe like exhausted and terrified after running from orcs through the woods I don't feel like I have the capacity to deal with it but as I like have slept a couple of nights and I'm feeling more refreshed like that would be the point where I'd say oh okay I'm ready to deal with this thank yeah, god I, I have the bandwidth to be sad <laughs> yeah and I even mean that's more been than this week even more than, like, um, mourning 
you know, the life of Gandalf himself, I was expecting more of a like, oh my God, what do we do now? Because, <laughs> you know, you Gandalf mean aside was, from Aragorn being like, fuck you guys, I was right. <laughs> yeah. Aside from that, it was, like I was expecting, you know, Gandalf was by definition, the leader of this fellowship so far. And now they don't really know what they're doing without him. Aragorn has, like, not really stepped into the shoes of leader yet. But he did say, right? And, like, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit because we haven't started talking about Gimli and the elves and their relationship there. But he does say, if I am to be leader of this fellowship, then, um, Mm, you know, we should do this when Gimli and the elves are arguing which was the point in my notes where I went, who died and made Aragorn? Oh. (laughs) (laughs) But genuinely, right? Like, they didn't sort of decide that Aragorn was going to be leader. Gandalf was pretty well established, and then, like, Aragorn just sort of took it upon himself to make decisions. Lesson learned. If somebody, if the leader of your group dies, you should be the one that publicly advised them not to do the thing that got them killed. It, it lends a certain air of legitimacy <laughs> that will almost certainly lead to you becoming the next leader. Oh. A good I told you so moment is how to take up the leadership mantle. Right. This is what you really come to this podcast for is uh, how to succeed in business with only a little bit of character death. <laughs> and also how to be relegated to middle manager of middle earth. Yeah, there's, yeah, between the, um, between, between them meeting Haldir in Lothlorien, um, and Haldir, like, having them bind their eyes as they walk through the forest, and him having them walk across, like, one of those, like, flimsy-ass rope bridges, um, and him pulling the, like, it's just our policy, sorry, on all of them, as a justification for these things, it really like it really does lend a feel like a, a, a real office vibe to Lothlorien. <laughs> anyway, so Haldir is the is I I don't really know what his official role or title is, but he ends up being the one who takes them to Lothlorien to meet uh, Galadriel and Celeborn. And um, he's border in the process, patrol. He's what? He's border he's patrol. He's the bridge troll? No, he's border patrol. Oh, border patrol. <laughs> he's okay. the bridge troll. I mean, arguably a bridge troll is also border patrol. Yeah, I don't think I uh, I don't think I was saying anything different from what you were saying there. <laughs> no, his I mean, he's like a scout, right? Like he and his brothers, their job is basically to watch the edge of the woods and make sure that nobody comes in. Mhm. Okay, well, anyway, he he decides, he meets Legolas and Frodo first, and Legolas, you know, speaks to him in their special elvish tongue, and he's like, yeah, you seem chill. Um, But he's very skeptical about the rest of the company, especially Gimli. Um, And this is really our first glimpse into, um, aside from when they were in Rivendell, where it seemed like the dwarves were treated pretty reasonably, at least, this is our first glimpse of, like, elf-dwarf relations not being so great. Haldir is like pretty annoying about it too. He's basically like, everybody can come with me except the dwarf. And then they're like, no, no, he has to come with us too. And then he's like, okay, everybody can come with me, but the dwarf has to be blindfolded. (laughs) And then um, finally Aragorn makes some bipartisan political moves and he's like, no, we'll all be blindfolded. It's fine. 
and uh, you know, Legolas hates that idea. But th- this was this was just petty. This like this is some some real petty stuff here. Yeah. What I thought was really interesting about this was that the first real moment of pretty serious like anti-dwarf sentiment among elves is from a group of elves that are just objectively very like isolationist and sort of closed off. I mean, they are really explicit about the fact that they don't leave Lorien. And that they're so isolationist that most people in Middle Earth don't know that they're there. <laughs> right. So it's like it's really interesting to me that they're the ones who are going to be most sort of anti-dwarf because they're also, quite frankly, pretty suspicious even initially of everybody else in the company who isn't Legolas. Right. And like Legolas himself is not nearly so anti-dwarf as these guys are. I don't really understand why this relationship is not an okay one, at least, because it seems like, at least historically, they have faced some pretty similar trials, right? Like, um, I think it's mentioned in this chapter that the Balrog is, like, the enemy of the elves, and he's also clearly the enemy of the dwarves, but rather than be like, let's unite behind the fact that we have to fight this horrible creature, the elves are just like, how dare you have awakened this creature? (laughs) Like, they completely (laughs) play the blame game with it, and I don't know, like, what was the original event that occurred that made these two races not get along? So I want to, I have something to say about this. Yeah. Um, I, I guess, and, and this is, um, yeah, for one thing, the Balrog does not seem to have made very many friends. But also, I guess before reading this chapter, I didn't really understand the, the elf versus dwarf relationship either. Um, but if you think about it, it makes, I think it makes a lot of sense because on the, you know that at one point the, dwar- the dwarves and the elves were collaborating. They were collaborating on rings, the ring project. Um, and then somewhere, <laughs> somewhere down the line, the elves managed to retain their rings, um, and the dwarves lost theirs. And I don't know if it's been clarified at that point or up until this point how that actually happened. But because rings in Middle Earth and in Tolkien's universe are basically like a one-to-one allegory for power, you can extrapolate from that that the elves have a lot of power and the dwarves, relatively speaking, don't have as much power. Um, which kind of translates into the fact that like the the dwarves are um, making these efforts uh, to like go and reclaim any kind of um, any kind of I guess clout or power that they previously had, like their their um, foray into the Lonely Mountain or Balin trying to go and reclaim Moria. They're they're kind of on the defensive at this point in this part of Middle Earth history, um, trying to get back on their feet as a nation. The elves, meanwhile have been smooth sailing for a long time. And my impression was kind of just like we were talking about a few chapters ago, how uh, Boromir's like, what the fuck you guys like Gondor has been holding off Sauron for ages and we haven't gotten any help from you. The, the dwarves are clearly like the junior partner in the dwarf elf relationship and the elves far from offering any help to the dwarves seem to be like literally saying it's your guys's fault. What's happened to you. And you better not, you better not like so much as pass the borders of our land. So I, I, I don't know. I've, I feel very sour about the elves at this point. I also wonder how much of this has to do with honestly a little bit of like 
I don't know if jealousy is the right word, but there was this sense of, at one point, the dwarves in Moria and the elves in Lorien were not just sort of collaborating, but were also trade partners, because Moria is where all of the mithril in the world is coming from, and it's this incredibly precious substance. And, and I think there's some indicators of... Again, like not necessarily jealousy, but maybe greed in The Hobbit, too, in terms of like, oh, we're going to help you, but you need to give us a share of the treasure in the Lonely Mountain, um, you know? And so I kind of wonder, you know, yes, I agree with you fully, Wanda. I'm pretty sour on the elves after some of the events in these chapters. Um, but I also kind of wonder how much of it is like, oh, well they were making a lot of money and they have a lot of treasure. And so if we're going to help them, like they better be giving us something as opposed right. to like, we're just going to help them because they've had a run of really bad luck. And, and I think, I guess help. like, that's uh, like, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because that actually, I feel like underscores my point because the, the, the dwarves are typified as being too greedy. They delve too deep. They awoke the, uh, they awoke the big bads underneath Moria. Um, but why the fuck were they looking for mithril in the first place? It wasn't so they could hoard it. They sold it to the elves. The elves <laughs> needed it. <laughs> the elves made their own shit out of it. Um, so everybody is clearly complicit here. It's just yes. the, the dwarves have gotten the business end of Moria. What I thought was interesting, though, like, I totally agree. I came away from these chapters not being totally in love with the elves here. And the interesting thing is what we've discussed a few times now is that Tolkien was in love with the elves, right? He has written these elves to be the superior people in this land. And it's evident even in the description of like how he describes Lorien versus how he describes Moria. Like one of the places is described as like a place you don't really want to go. Like there's this giant cavern underground and there's no light and it's awful. And then the other one is just like beautiful trees everywhere and they're golden and we all built tree houses in them and it's so magical. And, and even those like descriptions of where they live, it's intended to give you this idea that one of these is desirable and the other one is not. And yet we all came away from this chapter being like, mm, I'm kind of with Gimli here. <laughs> like He came off as the most reasonable character, despite the fact that it feels like Tolkien was trying all of his like, little tricks to make us want to be one of the elves in Lorien. And we came away being like, they're not very nice. Yeah, Gimli gets shafted. Oh, yeah. No, Gimli and Gimli responds honestly with a lot of like dignity and grace and good humor to being repeatedly told that he's at fault for everything bad that has like ever happened in the vicinity of Moria personally what's interesting to me is that i don't know that tolkien was as in love with the elves themselves as maybe we had previously thought because I think it's really hard to look at a set of chapters where all of us came away, and this is not the first time that all of us have come away pretty strongly feeling like the elves have not been shown in a good light, right? Like, this isn't the first time that's happened. It's and probably so I not don't, a coincidence. Right. Like, I don't think it's an accident. So I would almost say, like, 
to me, that's part of the diminishing, maybe, of the elves and the end of their power, right? Is this idea of at one time, Lorien was this beautiful, idyllic city, and in some ways, it still is, but preserving that has come at the cost of these elves shutting themselves off from the outside world and being really callous about the ways in which they've chosen to shut themselves off from the outside world. And there is a cost to that preservation. Right. And and that's where kind of you get characters like Saruman coming in and saying, hey, the age of elves is over and it's time for the age of men. And it's almost like that superiority complex has led to I don't know why the the thing that I just thought of was like how people see like West Coast liberals as elitist. Oh, absolutely! I got a but, huge Silicon Valley vibe from Lothlorien. Yeah. <laughs> uh, up to including, okay, for one thing, we're talking about. So sorry to. I feel so obnoxious, like pulling this card, but like we're talking about a city that's literally in the cloud. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, we're done. I th- it's probably because of what's going on around us as we read these chapters that I got major political vibes from these chapters, but there was a lot of um, you know, efforts to reconcile but also like this inherent sense of like we will never get along. And then um <laughs> I think the the best description of the elves was the is the one that Sam gives when they uh, when Frodo asks him, you know, like, what do you think of the elves now? And Sam is pretty much like, I think there are like elves and then there are elves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and we can kind of see this in this chapter, too, because these elves in Lothlorien do not feel like the elves at Rivendell. And in fact, Lothlorien doesn't feel like Rivendell either. Rivendell is described as this like incredibly beautiful, but like very comfortable place. And you get this kind of sense of unease in Lothlorien, even in the way that they don't really want to sleep in these trees because they're worried they're going to fall out of them. And, um, and you don't get that same sense of this being like a place they want to stay for a long time. And none of those have anything in common with Mirkwood, which is, I, yeah, Mirkwood just I gets shafted. What Mirkwood Merc, is. I don't know, but it Merkwood feels like, like the, the Mirkwood elves, elves just like no, Mirkwood is Sacramento, okay? Mirkwood is NorCal, but like not a great place in NorCal. <laughs> Mirkwood is just Bakersfield. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think that idea of Lorien being a little uncomfortable is something that actually when they are introduced to Galadriel right and she offers them all basically this test of what would you do if i could give you everything you've wanted and you just had to give up this quest and sort of escorting the ring to mordor would you take it and boromir is like yeah that felt a little weird that she did that um it felt kind of like she was tempting us or offering something she can't actually give And Aragorn is very defensive and basically says, oh, you know, there's nothing evil that could ever possibly happen at the hands of the Lady Galadriel or in Lothlorien. But that's not really, that doesn't really feel true or that doesn't really, it didn't ring true to me when I read it because it felt like there's quite a bit of sort of mental and emotional harm that happens to several characters in Lorien. And and later it's revealed or I, I think it's revealed that the reason that Gladriel is doing that is because she low key 
has half a thought to weaken the fellowship in order to take the ring. Yeah, right. I mean, at the very least, that's her own temptation is this idea of, oh, what would I do if it came into my hands and and could I take it um, by force or by coercion? Yeah, it's it's interesting that Aragorn even is the one that says that because while they're walking to Lothlorien, um, they're talking a little bit about whether or not they're safe. And, you know, Boromir says something like, oh, the people of Gondor don't go to Lothlorien. Like, we, we avoid that place because it's dangerous. And Aragorn says something like, you know, it's not an evil place, but it is dangerous. And the idea that something could be dangerous without being bad or without being evil is very interesting. And we see that, like... It manifests in Galadriel. And we kind of saw it earlier with Gandalf, too, when he refused to take the ring, right? Where it was like, I am scared of the good that I would try to do. I think it would be interesting to kind of talk about how the different nations have gotten to this place that they're at. Because at this point, Galadriel says, um, do you realize, Frodo, how you're coming here is as the footsteps of doom? Because um, she says, "I, I wish that the one ring had never been found. Because now we do have to destroy it. That makes a lot of sense. Otherwise, Sauron's going to achieve dominion, and we don't want that. But on the other hand, um, because all the power of all the rings is inflated when the One Ring is in existence, destroying the One Ring is going to diminish the power of the Elven Rings, um, and that's going to make Middle Earth a less habitable or a less ideal place for elves to live. So, so I'm a little confused about that premise because I from what I understood before, the elven rings of power are not linked to the one ring. Like they're the ones that were hidden when the one ring was forged. So I don't really understand why their power is dependent on it. Yeah. I think Ashani got that on a level that we didn't get it. Yeah. My understanding of that was that the elven rings are not under its dominion, right? They're not under its control, but they are all, linked, right? The idea that the One Ring is still essentially elevating, right, like elevating magic in this world is maybe kind of the the simplified way of thinking about it, is that because the One Ring in, is in existence, there is just this pool of magic that has been greatly expanded. And if that goes away, that limits the ability of the Elven Rings to draw on that magic. Right. And so that was kind of my read on it was that the if the one ring is destroyed, all of the rings of power are now a little weaker. The implication, I think, is that the the elves actually weren't as elvish as they are now before the one ring was created. Like elf civilizations, as we know them, are partially a a result of the power that the one ring brought into the world. I mean, I certainly think that elf civilizations, as we meet them in the context of these books, have been shaped by the fact that, yeah, the one ring is in this world, and also that their response to sort of the events of the last several millennia has been trying to stay the same that that in and of itself as the world has changed around them has made them sort of less adapted in some ways to the other sort of cultures or civilizations that we encounter 
Right, like the dwarves. I think like that's that kind of explains the conflict or the the perennial rift that they have with the dwarves. Um, we can assume that like if Galadriel regrets that the One Ring was found, then probably all of the elves or all of the elf rulers were sort of hoping, like crossing their fingers, that the One Ring was never going to be found and they could just sort of exist in stasis like this. Um, and and so they weren't they weren't trying to they weren't trying to kind of move make any moves or disturb anything about the status quo of I mean not to get like super like Karl Marx on here even though I am a Marxist but like to to like the, it seems like the elves are really benefiting from the status quo the the elite they're benefiting from the status quo in Middle Earth in this episode Wanda outs herself as a Marxist <laughs> yeah no, you can take that out if you want doesn't matter Paul, this isn't a political um, podcast except that it totally is because we that's all we talk about <laughs> <laughs> entirely a political podcast yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we talked a little bit about the mirror. I mentioned it before, but the main uh, the main point of Galadriel being in this chapter, I think, is to show Frodo and Sam some visions in her mirror. Um, and so we get this like the scene where Frodo. Well, first Sam looks into the mirror, and he essentially sees the foreshadowing of what eventually becomes the Scouring of the Shire, right? Which is like. People are tearing things up. Things are not going so well. And Sam is like, oh, man, maybe we should have sent. He says Mary back, as Elrond suggested, although I'm pretty sure Elrond suggested sending Pippin back. Um, So that's (laughs) an interesting mistake. But yeah, so he sees that and his immediate reaction is like, I got to go back there and save the Shire now. And then Galadriel reminds him. Yeah, Sam thinks he's going to go up and muscle muscle everybody out of the Shire. (laughs) Sam continues to just be so sweet. It's like unbearable. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and, th- and then Frodo looks in and he sees um actually sorry, Sam Sam also sees some visions of like their quest to Mount Doom as well. He sees like Frodo lying on uh like what looks to be asleep. Um he sees himself climbing a stair which I assume is going to eventually be Carathungal. Um and and then Frodo looks in the mirror and he sees a vision of Gandalf, he thinks, or maybe it's Saruman. He doesn't really know. It's a white wizard. And then he sees uh, some other just like general dark things. And then he sees the eye of Sauron himself. Um, and my reaction to this was like, if I was reading this actually for the first time and I didn't know what any of these things coming were, this would be ultra confusing. What does any of it mean? It's so vague. Yeah, that was definitely my take, too, was that if I was and I was thinking about it as if I was in either Frodo or Sam's shoes, I would find either of those experiences to be incredibly unhelpful because I feel like all they would do would be I'd feel really confused. I'd be stressed about what's happening back home if I was Sam and worried that I was making some sort of horrible mistake by not going back to try and stop that. And I'd be freaked out about what's coming up next. Like, it doesn't... None of that information felt clear enough to be helpful until after it happens. Yeah, do the elves, like, do this regularly? I mean, it seems like every time they show up... The elves are just, like, being deliberately vague and unhelpful. (laughs) 
like they provide just enough information to be intriguing, but not enough to actually take any action on. Right. Well, I, I don't know how I feel about that. I guess I, I guess I feel like pushing back a little bit just because the, the thing I like about, about the mirror of Gladriel is that it, it's introduced right after Sam and Frodo have this conversation where Sam's like, this has been great, but I would like to see some more magic. Um, and Gladriel's <laughs> like, you want magic, bitch? Look into my mirror. Uh, it's going to ruin your life. This is um, great, but do the one where you saw the lady in half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think like what, what she's trying to say here is like the magic is, is not what you think it is. It's not technology. Um, it's not a series of tricks that are conjured up for your enjoyment. It's, it's a thing that's beyond your comprehension. That's what makes it magic. Um, and, and it's never going to be anything besides that. Um, here, learn your lesson. That seems like a very emotionally scarring way to teach someone that right before they're about to resume a very harrowing quest. I mean, to be fair, it's, I don't think she controls what they see in the mirror, right? Yeah. They just see things. And but I she think she says like, it. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and she says it as like, um, when Sam is like, I got to go back to the Shire. She says, not all of these things will come to pass. Like the future is uncertain still. So basically, like, here's what's going to happen, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think it, Interestingly, all of the things she sees do come to pass. So there's kind of like one more thing that happens consistently in these chapters and actually in some of the preceding chapters, too, that I wanted to spend a little time discussing. And that is that we're getting this really, really slow, but really, really ominous ramp up of at, at various points in time, people spotting what is usually referred to as a pair of eyes or a pair of glowing eyes. And sometimes this is, you know, really subtly done in which you don't really know if it's referring to like the light coming in through the windows. They're just like two circles of light or um, sometimes they just are eyes following them around. And obviously we know that this is Gollum who is following them at this point. Uh, but this is a really great in my opinion like build up of tension yeah it's so scary i I can't tell if you're being sarcastic or not oh i'm sorry no i uh (laughs) oh i wonder what if that's something that people have a problem with with me all the time no i i literally meant it i think it's really freaky yeah i think the thing that i felt reading these chapters and and reading this book in general is that it feels like tolkien actually when he attempts to use a writing device, he does it really successfully <laughs> when he like deliberately is like, I'm going to do this thing. And then you're when like, he remembers yes. that he's writing a book. Yeah. And you're like, you nailed it. Good job, Tolkien. And then most of the time though, he's like losing himself in his own, you know, thoughts about this world and his desire to give us more of a world building than a story. Yeah. I I will say as effective as I find the sort of we get first just the light like eyes right and that was sort of what we got in Moria and I think at one point Frodo has this sense of like there's footsteps or like someone is following them um, you know and then in this chapter we actually get he hears Gollum breathing and Haldir sees Gollum running down the tree in the dark and 
I absolutely agree. I think it's really effective as like horror style this building tension of you know when he's getting closer and he keeps getting bolder and approaching and approaching and approaching and also they have had an elf with them this whole goddamn time are you telling me that the entire way through moria legolas never once said hey guys i think someone's following us (laughs) so something that happens um in the movies that was not in the books was that Frodo actually tells Gandalf about this in in Moria. He's like, yo, I think someone's following us. And Gandalf's like, yeah, I know. Like, it's Gollum. He's been there the whole time. Don't worry about <laughs> it. <laughs> um, and so I wonder if Legolas, like, knows about this somehow and he's just, like, gonna ignore it deliberately or... Yeah, it is. it does feel weird that nobody is calling On this out. On the other hand, Gollum, Gollum clearly outclassed the elves in Mirkwood before. But that was with help. And it wasn't like, oh, he sort of then stayed in Mirkwood. It was he was running away from them. Wait, does that does that matter that he was running away? Yeah, because I'm it's not, not like he was sort of trying to hang out and was always like there still and they just kept missing <laughs> He's just him. Trying to be friends with the fellowship. <laughs> He's like, ah Right. <laughs> trying to make himself look like an elf. He puts on a wig. <laughs> He puts on Haldir's wig. (laughs) (laughs) But the other thing, too, is that Frodo talks to Gimli, I think, about it in the previous set of chapters and is like, I think someone's following us. And then Gimli or whoever it is he's talking to is basically like, no, no, it's fine. Like, we're fine. I love that moment, actually, because Gimli, like Gimli just casually like tossed off that he can like hear the whisperings of stones and grasses. Yeah, right. And. And I think that's something that also works in the horror movie sort of or horror writing genre of somebody is sure that something is wrong and they're told, no, no, it's fine. Right. And we are sitting there going, no, it's not fine. We know it's not fine. But clearly, like it's the moment of like they're being like, no, no, go down to the basement and check out what that sound is. It's fine, right? I'm embarrassed to say this, but I, the, it's like the, the two lamplights of Gollum's eyes are symbolic of uh, Frodo literally gaslighting himself. And <laughs> but that's the thing, right? It's like, clearly Frodo was concerned enough to bring it up. And so that's the part where I'm like, really, nobody else noticed, like nobody well, else saw we anything. We get confirmation of this later because the elves in Lorien see him. They see a creature like scuttling away and they describe what he looks like. And like still nobody in the fellowship is like, maybe we should think about who this might be or be worried like, about it. This is a distant second priority compared to this dwarf. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was really how it read, though, right? Is Haldir's like, oh yeah, by the way, and also there's a creature following you. Hey, so by the way, you know, like going forward, this is what you should do. It just like drops it into conversation and then never talks about it again. Now, back to whether or not we should blindfold this damn dwarf. <laughs> yeah, so it did, you know, like Legolas to me dropped the ball a little bit there in terms of your whole job is to be a scout and sort of the eyes and ears for your party because you have the best senses. He's really not helping his himbo classification no. very much. Oh, however, though, Legolas in possibly the best thing that's happened in this chapter 
decides that he is going to go on field trips and and he takes Gimli along and the bromance begins. (laughs) It's so cute. That was really cute. Yeah, it's so good. I don't know. It makes me think that like Legolas is like a, um, like a class traitor. Um, in that he like, he like comes from this like nation of elves that clearly like the, they're like the dwarves of the elves. Yeah. Um, and as <laughs> the as dwarves has- of the elves. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of jokes about Mirkwood being like the sort of redneck cousin of all of Mirkwood is is the Radagast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. This has almost like a geometric kind of symmetry to it. <laughs> Um, yeah, but, uh, but it seems like after the trust exercise of being (laughs) blindfolded with Gimli, after checking his privilege at the door, Legolas is maybe, maybe, I I mean, sorry, I'm being flipped, but, but it does, it does sort of seem like the character development here is Legolas experiences, um, experiences forced solidarity with Gimli by being blindfolded in Orion. And then he's sort of like, oh, yeah, I'm curious what led to his actual changing of his mind, because I don't know if it was the blindfolding. I, I actually read it as, like, Galadriel's acceptance of Gimli was kind of Legolas's last mental barrier of, like, all right, this guy is fine. Hmm. I, d- I didn't um, read it that way. I think I read it more the way Wanda did, where it was a sense of really recognizing or being forced to recognize that the way that some of the elves are tweet are tweeting <laughs> are treating <laughs> I'm just gonna s- elves the elves are elf tweeting. Twitter is just lit right now <laughs> I'm gonna s- elves elves tweeting and elfish I'm gonna say that again right that Legolas realizing that the way that some of the other elves are treating Gimli is is something that he's uncomfortable with because there's actually a point where um, you know, Haldir is say, trying to decide right at the very beginning, like, should we even let these the rest of these guys in to the forest? And Legolas talks to him at length and Elvish, and we can kind of assume vouches for the rest of the party, including Gimli. And I think there's that moment of recognition that we're all like all of the fellowship is collectively grieving Gandalf and for Gimli to be singled out by Celeborn as the reason Gandalf is dead and for Gimli to be singled out as like the one person who has to wear a blindfold and and for Gimli to be so kind of like he he acts very nobly yes. in the face of yes. that you know he he doesn't he doesn't do anything that would be like typical dwarf behavior in in Legolas's mind he's he's he acts honorably and so Legolas is kind of like Okay. Legolas in this chapter is um, he's meeting other elves for almost the first time. Like he's he is he's been in Mirkwood most of his life. Obviously, he's been to Rivendell, but he's never been to Lothlorien before. So he's meeting the elves of Lothlorien for the first time. This is like his first time on Elf Tinder. There's a whole world out there. <laughs> There's a whole world out there, and I think that there is an experience that you have sometimes of um, growing up conceiving yourself to be part of a certain identity group, and then actually getting more exposure to what that identity group entails um, that can, under certain circumstances, you know, 
make you kind of change your mind about the importance of certain identity markers to you, right? Like, um, and well, and also I think what it's he's going through. It's notable too that they have just come from they've come to Elfland from Dwarfland, right? They were in Moria this whole time, and like. Gimli did not say anything to Legolas the whole time they were in Moria about how dwarves are superior, about how he shouldn't be there, like nothing, right? In fact, there were there was actually some like like the the door of Moria is opened by an elf word. So, I feel like also that juxtaposition of like, oh, this guy was super chill to me like in in his area. And now, like, they're treating, like, my people are treating him like shit. Like, that's not great. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. I mean, I think, like, there's, there's a a funny overlap with, like, I mean, I don't know if Tolkien was aware of this or if he meant it, but, um, you know how, like, in the, in the 20th century, you had, um, like, colonizer nations that were, um, they were sort of advanced capitalist economies, and then you had, on the other hand, you had, like, nations that were trying to become rich and they were all what were they they were all uh uh economies that were based off of resource extraction and it's it's like a funny parallel that you have here where like the the dwarves are like this resource extraction economy that has been like um not to pull like a mining pun here but like shafted they've been shafted (laughs) um and (laughs) um and and like subsequently like left behind by the elves um and made to feel like it was their fault and maybe it was their fault maybe we're not i mean i don't know if we're if we're getting any closer to what tolkien's view of his own world was but this is what it seems like to me yeah i definitely took the field trips as a an unspoken apology on legolas's part i so i like that read i like both of your your take on it I think I still kind of read it as like Legolas wanted to like I, I felt like there was this shift in her, his perspective when the whole interaction with Galadriel happened and basically he saw Gimli Gimli says I think to Galadriel he's like yeah this this land is pretty beautiful um I, I, I paraphrase <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's all Gimli right takes the first step <laughs> Yeah, yeah and, Gimli, Gimli really simps for Gladriel. Yeah, he does. Um, I, th- I, I read it as kind of Legolas being like, oh, like he's he's interested in what this is, and so let me show him around. That's probably a lot closer, actually. That Yeah, I feel like that's probably closer to what actually happens. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. We don't get very much information about these field trips other than that they are occurring and everyone else is wondering about them. <laughs> Maybe they just love each other, but we'll never know because Tolkien is so bad at reading So I think at this point, let's do a quick round robin of like anything else from this chapter you noticed or, or want to talk about, and then we can call it good. My uh, takeaway from this chapter was that I think it was really ambitious of Tolkien to choose this many main characters. Um, this is a lot of people to be following around, and I noticed it in this chapter because at some point Mary said something and I was like, oh 
yeah, Mary's here. <laughs> like I had forgotten about his presence for a while. And it seemed like, it seems like the way he's dealing with it is just to have small asides occasionally reminding us like he, for no reason at all, he tells us that Pippin is particularly good at climbing the ropes that they have. And <laughs> I feel like that the sole purpose of that description was just to remind you that Pippin is there. But, um, I, I feel like it's going to make a lot of sense why he chose to split these teams up into smaller groups of characters, because it's really hard to actually give the thoughts and to give meaningful interactions between nine different people at this point, eight, but you know, <laughs> although as soon as he splits them up, he just, he just creates some more characters for all of the smaller groups. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. Tolkien doesn't necessarily the more characters you have, the more characters you have, the more development you have to, or the less development you have to do for all the characters. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's my hot take on this, on these chapters. Wanda, do you want to go next? I, I, I love like a lot of the things about how they, about how this chapter is written. And I was going to bring up the phrase Lorien of the Blossom, which I think is just like beautiful, like beyond a lot of the things that we've read in the book so far. But I don't really have like a, I don't have a great critique or a great analysis of that. So I think instead I'm just going to talk about the song that Legolas sings when they get to Lorien. Um, because Tolkien it, it can't sort of, even go a single chapter without a song. <laughs> like seriously. Well, I'm finally, yeah. Like <laughs> I'm finally down with it though, because I, I, it, after Moria where Gimli sings a song, it's, it's beginning to feel like whenever we get to like a new geographical location, there's a character that will be like, especially familiar with that place. Um, or have some kind of historical understanding of that place and they'll sing a song about it. And it, it's begun to feel almost like a musical where like whenever you get to like a plot point, there's like someone that like sings a song about it. And I'm, I'm kind of down with it now. All right, Ashani, give us your, uh, okay. Well, I, I think my hot take. Okay. So I have two, I have one hot take and one just kind of question. Um, my hot take is that Hollywood does a bad job on silver wigs. So come at me. Celeborn's wig is bad and they should feel bad. Netflix got the closest with Henry Cavill, and uh, that's how they should do silver wigs from now on. The A plus work on Henry yeah, Cavill. Yeah, right. Um, I, yeah. The Vegan. question slash sort of, huh, I thought this was weird, was Aragorn gets to Lorien and he says, like, this is where my heart resides um, at the end of the first of the two chapters we read for today. And it's this really sad sort of moment because the narration tells us, and then he left and he would never return again as a living man. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that he said his heart lives in Lorien, of all places, rather than where Arwen is. Um, because I think that idea of like, my heart lives somewhere else is a very romantic one. But normally it's associated with, like, my heart lives with this other person or where that other person is and not, like, I'm assuming maybe they met in Lorien for the first time or that was where they fell in love or something. But I'm like, but she's not there now. I think this is, like, a weird reference to how Arwen is Galadriel's granddaughter. I don't really know what the intent is there. I don't, yeah, it's I, it's kind of a weird thing. Also, this was like a really weirdly like ominous chapter ending where, you know, they say he'll never return there as a living man. Like, 
Aragorn goes on to live a long and happy life. This was a weird way to be like, but he never comes back here specifically. I was real. I, that made me sad. It made me sad too, but it felt like a sadness that wasn't even warranted because like, who cares? He's fine. Yeah. I mean, there is a sadness to, even if you do live like a long and fulfilling life, not being able to go back to a place or time that was important to you. And at the same time, mm-hmm. it was sort of like, this was an odd choice to make us feel that way about Aragorn and Lorien specifically, because we really don't have any context for why this yeah. place is important to him. And, you know, the the flower sort of indicates that romance aspect of it. But even that, it's like, when we've met Arwen, the one time we've met Arwen, all we know is that she lives in Rivendell. Well, I think that, like, a lot of... Uh, uh, to me, like, one of the most poignant parts of this series so far is... Um, how if you look close enough you can see all of the characters from time to time reckoning with all of the things that have already happened in their lives and all the things that could happen and the paths Mm -hmm. that they could take and then sort of just choosing to move forward and at the at the very last part of um chapter six uh aragorn says here is the heart of elvendom on earth referring to lorian and here my heart dwells ever unless there be a light beyond the dark roads that we still must tread you and i come with me and taking Frodo's hand in his, he left the kill of Karen Amroth and came never there again as a living man. And so it seems like you're, the fact that you get, the fact that he actually points to maybe there will be something that matters more to me than Lothlorien mm-hmm. ahead of us um, in that paragraph implies to me that you're, what we're supposed to take from it is along with uh, like Aragorn's accepting his, the, the amount that this place matters to him. And he's also he's also sort of accepting the the kind of vault of the future with all of its all of its possibilities and all of its opportunities and choosing to go out of Lothlorien and accept that maybe there will be something else that that is more important to him later and it seems like the fact that he never chooses to return to Lothlorien signals that there is oh i really like That's that a very beautiful way to wrap up yeah <laughs> Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Navia. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, and all of our listeners for joining us on this journey. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and or a review on whatever platform you listen to. Thank you. Sorry, I did this because there was a fly.